Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to MLI's Inside Policy Podcast. I'm Aaron Woodrick. I'm the director of MLI's Domestic Policy Program. Very pleased to be joined today by one of our senior fellows, Kave Sharuz. Kave, thanks for joining us. Really good to be with you, Aaron. Yeah, we're going to talk about that uh, classic important issue, free speech, today. Um, and I know, Kave, you had penned something which I'm generously co-authored on, although I think my contribution was less than yours. But I wanted to talk about this piece and about the general idea of free speech today. You know, obviously, we're having this conversation in the wake of the October 7 terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel and the subsequent fallout from that. Um, and that's led to a lot of consternation. We see it online. We see calls for, uh, you know, silencing people who are expressing certain opinions. And, uh, you know, you, you very insightfully pointed out that um, when it comes to free speech, people who claim to, to take a position on it seem to switch sides frequently depending on the content of the speech in question. So maybe, you know, we'll start with well, why is that? Why do you think it is people who believe they support free speech? find their sort of commitment to that principle um, to be pretty thin when it really counts? Yeah, well, it's because uh, free speech uh, means that you have to tolerate really awful stuff that you disagree with. And um, it's easy to be in favor of it um, when you're not hearing awful stuff said about your cause um, and much tougher to be in favor of it when you know those things are being said. So, you know, I came of age in the 90s and early 2000s when it was the religious right that was very keen on censorship. And it was the political left that really talked a lot about um, free speech. And I entirely agreed with them at the time. And then in the last few years, I think those um, of us that observe the culture have seen that it's really been the progressive left, the woke left, whatever you want to call them, um, that have adopted identity politics and have imposed these really severe uh, speech restrictions. And it was the right that, in my view, rightly um, opposed it and made free speech sort of a cornerstone of their ideology. And yet after October 7th, almost overnight, the roles switched again. Um, and, you know, people started saying awful things, um, some of them in favor of Hamas or, you know, making really um, nasty accusations about Israel. And I understand the instinct to want to shut them down. But, uh, you know, I, I think our society is healthier when even awful ideas manage to get aired and we have the opportunity to dismiss them. Is it really as simple as that the, the sort of emotional impulse overrides this sort of abstract commitment? Because when you think about, um, it's, it's almost like a rhetorical arms race, if you will, right? Where people say, well, you know, I, I oppose this so strongly that I, I don't think it should be allowed, right? Like, and if, you, and if you're doing less than that, it suggests that, well, maybe you're not as committed to whatever the cause is because you don't want to, have that terrible speech happen. Is, is that what's going on here? Is that people just instinctively have a hard time separating the content of given speech yeah. um, from the right to, to say it somewhere? I, I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. I mean, I think people where they feel strongly about a cause, they see um, opposing viewpoints as constituting hate speech, right? I think mm -hmm. this is the dynamic that we've been seeing at play. Unless you're a free speech absolutist, which I'm not, 
um, you know, I think most people agree that there is um, a zone of speech and then there's speech that falls outside of it that, that sure. by and large is hate speech, right? And for the last few years, you've seen the progressive left talk about all sorts of speech as being hate speech. Oh, you know, this is hateful. This induces violence. This, right. uh, uh, you know, denies my right to exist and so on and so forth. And they've used that to delegitimize and close the space for speech. Um, and some people may legitimately have felt like that speech was hate speech. And I would disagree with that. Um, and I think what we've seen post October 7th is that now people on the political right are seeing speech that they dislike. And again, they're defining the zone very narrowly. And they're saying anything that, uh, that is in favor of Hamas, anything that attacks Israel, that constitutes hate speech. A lot of it, as I said, is, is deeply felt. Um, I'm, not, I'm not questioning that people feel hurt by that speech. But I think we have to be very careful in applying that term of, you know, this is hate speech. We have to, we have to apply that very narrowly if we want to have the healthy kind of society that allows for discussion of, of a lot of different ideas. Is, it, is part of the problem that it's just fundamentally subjective? Like if you have individuals, for example, on the left, you would say people, uh, you know, people on the right that would say things that would be considered homophobic or transphobic is that the individuals in those communities, when they hear certain words, they feel a sense of alarm or danger that's subjective. So to them, that counts as hate speech and shouldn't be allowed. And then conversely, now after um, October 7th, you plenty of Jews who understandably feel that words that might seem innocuous to other people are particularly upsetting and threatening to them as, as being seen as anti-Semitic. So is, is the problem that it's just really hard to get inside under other people's heads and people, um, even in good faith, people who think they support free speech to them personally, certain speeches seem so threatening that they think it sort of reaches that threshold. I, I think so. That's my sense of it. Um, I think the problem is, you know, we, everyone says I oppose hate speech. Well, I mean, except some, some, you know, speech radicals. Sure. Uh, but by and large, people will say, you know, I oppose hate speech. The problem is hate speech is often in the eyes of the beholder. Not always. I mean, there's some types of speech where, you know, we would recognize it immediately as hate speech. But what we're talking about much of the time are, are border cases, right? Like margin yeah. cases. Um, and, you know, people feel very strongly about certain causes and they see opposition to that as hate. Um, now, I, I would argue that, you know, supporting Hamas is closer to hate than, you know, uh, opposing what the left opposed, which was, you know, saying that there are two genders in the world. But that's that's a that's a personal view on my part. I feel like, you know, somebody might be able to, in good faith, uh, make the contrary arguments. And uh, I think that's really where the problem stems from. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about hate speech. I mean, uh, it, it, it's hard to find people who think that, oh, hate speech is great. I mean, who wants to stand up and say, I love hateful and offensive speech. Right. But but I think the challenge is separating um, and you talked about free speech absolutism. I think even what we would consider absolutists recognize. I mean, the law recognizes incitement to violence is not free speech. Libel is not. When we have well established carve outs for these things. But the 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 troubling uh, the, or the challenge with the word hate is, well, where does um, something that's insulting and offensive um, sort of uh, cross the line into, I mean, we have, we obviously don't allow incitement of violence because there's a component of physical violence there. And so um, I struggle with the hate speech because I, I obviously, I don't like uh, hate speech. I don't like the idea of people spreading hate, but saying that something that's really, really offensive should still in most cases be allowed precisely because um, if we make the standard simply that someone's subjectively offended or, or, or feel make, is made to feel bad, that's that's actually a very low threshold, and we end up running the risk of banning all kinds of speech. Does that does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And you know, for the past few years, we've been talking about 
very fragile young people, for example, um, yeah. you know, the coddling of the American minds, you know, you know yeah. folks are familiar with this type of argument. And a lot of it has, has turned on this exact concept that, that people, um, increasingly younger people are very fragile and they feel um, like a lot of what they hear is hate speech. But you can't run a democratic society when everybody's offended all the time and yeah. you end up, you know, limiting speech based on people taking offense to things. That just That's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as, if we keep the line, uh, like violence is a bright line, right? Physical violence is something that we can all agree. No one supports, you know, uh, speech that calls for physical violence. That's a that's a bright line that I don't think really anybody um, is arguing against. But I think you're right in that um, because there's been this increasing move towards equating words with violence, so they have the same effect. What do we expect then that people are going to say, oh, well, it is because words words can hurt, but words are not violence, right? But that, I think it's difficult for really grasp with. I wonder what your thoughts are on. Um, we obviously live in a world now where there's a lot of social media. You and I were both on Twitter, although I, I think like my like like me, you try and stay off of it or stay detached from it as much as possible. I wonder what you think is the impact of the fact that um, basically so much is out there on social media now. You know, when we're when we look at things, for example, you think of other exceptions to free speech, like uh, like libel. When we look at damages, damage awards and libel, a lot of it's, a lot of it's contingent on the reach of particular speech, right? Like if you are arguing that your your libel against me damaged my reputation and it cost me X dollars, a lot of that will be based on how well, how big your platform is. Do you think the fact that now everybody has a platform and that basically anytime you log on to a social media platform, you're exposed to so much more? hateful or offensive speech is that's what what making more people um uh you know willing to say we need to stop a lot of just because there's this din that there's cacophony of voices that you might not have had in the pre-digital era yeah i mean i think that has a lot to do with it i think um people are now it's, it used to be the case you know we talk a lot about people being in echo chambers and silos but i think it used to be the case where you just heard a lot less offensive speech on a daily yeah. basis you know you would read the newspaper and it had been edited and had been vetted and you, you weren't exposed to really awful things. Anytime I, I turn on, you know, I, I log on to Twitter, um, despite the fact that the algorithm regrettably just gives me things that it thinks I, I will like, I'm still exposed to an awful lot of really bad stuff, uh, yeah. stuff that I disagree with. And if I am fragile, if I am, uh, you know, looking to be offended, then there's a ton of stuff to be offended by. And I think that's probably what's causing people more and more to take this, uh, this view that we've got to, you know, put a, you know, clamp down on, on speech that is quote unquote hateful. Right. Um, we were talking a bit about these exceptions to free speech and I'm curious as to your view on whether, you know, do, do we, ba do we usually have all the carve outs we need um, or, or do we use a simple matter of applying those carve outs better to things like social media? Um, and maybe in particular, we talk a bit about incitement to violence, right? I mean, if you say, if you say kill all the X and X is a particular ethnic or racial group, um, everybody, that's pretty clear. People know that's the type of violence. But, you know, when we get into things like um, these protests now in the wake of October 7th, um, you know, there are some people who make the arguments that if there's a rally and people show up and they have Palestinian flags, you know, they're not supporting Hamas. They're simply supporting the Palestinian cause generally, whereas others argue that, well, by, by doing it at, at that time and sort of, in the, you know, in the wake of the Hamas attacks, you know, you are in effect sort of indirectly supporting, uh, you know, celebrating or calling for further violence. So, you know, is is uh, is a is incitement of violence basically a bright line, or do you think that there's maybe we need to rethink sort of where we draw the line there? 
I, I don't know if we can draw the line any any better than we already have. So, you know, when I look at these protests, I see a spectrum of speech, right? On the one hand, on the one end are people who are waving Hamas flags. You know, Hamas is a banned organization in Canada. So, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a pretty clear call that that should yeah. probably be illegal. Um, there are people, I haven't heard this so much in Canada, but I've, I've heard in other countries where people are yelling, you know, gas the Jews. Again, yep. very clear hate speech. Yeah. Right. At the other end of the spectrum are people that are waving the Palestinian flag. To me, that that's a pretty clear expression of political views. Right. right. I don't want to outlaw that. But let's take sort of a, a middle case. Right. The people chanting, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine yeah. should be free. I mean, that's really a matter of interpretation. Right. On the one yeah. hand, people see it as a genocidal call. Um, and I can understand why a reasonable person would arrive at that. And others would say, look, this is a political expression of our um, of our views. And that. You know, I, I really struggle with that, but I, I would prefer, and this is the argument that you and I made um, in our article, I, I would prefer that when there are these close calls, when there are these marginal cases, we err on the side of allowing speech because, again, we want to set up our society in a way where more ideas get a hearing as opposed to, as opposed to less. Yeah, yeah. And that's consistent, obviously, with criminal law, right, which has the two elements people will know, right, you need to have guilty mind and guilty act. So, you know, even if you commit the guilty act, it's hard to get inside people's heads. Like if people are singing that song from the river to the sea, you know, uh, one way to interpret that is if they intend to sort of wipe out the Israeli nation. Another is that, well, it's actually about Palestine. And we're not saying anything about what happens to the other people who are there. Maybe they're there, too. I mean, there's so so I think you're right, is that even though incitement to violence is uh, it, it might not capture everything. It's a, at least a clear objective line. And as you say, if we pick a different line, we're going to get into these cases where there might be this temptation to sort of creep uh, creep more and more towards censorship rather than uh, the deference. So, I mean, uh, I mean, do you think, uh, where do we go from here in terms of free speech? I mean, it's easy for us to call for more. It, it's very hard at these, you know, particularly emotionally charged times um, and, and nobody wants to seem callous, right? Nobody wants to seem like you don't care about the sort of uh, psychological harm that people are going through. Um, but at the same time, if we abandon our principles at these moments, right, we're not really going to have a leg to stand on um, at some other time. So, um, you know, is this something that governments can really address? I mean, is this a is this a cultural problem? Is it a matter of uh, standing our ground. I think maybe you and I had a small contribution to that by just saying something that we thought needed to be said. Um, is it a matter of, of waiting this out? Uh, maybe social media will die off or become less important. What can we do to help reinforce these important norms? Yeah. So, so first of all, I think, you know, there's that old saying about hard cases make bad law. Um, and I think the, the corollary to that is, you know, you know, hard situations probably make for bad policy decisions. Um, we should probably not be changing our approach to speech in the midst of this passionate debate right now. Right. right? But, but when things die down, I think there's a chance to kind of consider what's happened. My view is that the government should probably not be doing anything different. Like I think we've got pretty robust protections for speech. We just need to ensure that, uh, you know, that we abide by them. Um, but there, as you said, there's a large cultural component to it. And I think people need to understand why free speech um, is an important value. In fact, I would argue that it's the most important value, right? It's the corrective to everything else that can go wrong yeah. in a society. You can fix anything else so if long you as have. you can talk about it, if you can identify it. Um, and so I think people need to understand that. Um, but it's not just a matter of people understanding it. Our institutions also need to understand it, right? Like we're living in a world where the largest impediment to speech is increasingly not even the government anymore. 
right? Like, I mean, the government can, can ban certain types of speech and throw you in jail, and those things are awful, but it does that very rarely. It's really private platforms that can stop you from speaking. Um, you know, Amazon can cut you off from being able to sell your book. You know, sure. financial uh, companies can cut you off if you say certain things. Like, those are, those are real dangers. Um, and I think what we need is a conversation with these private actors about their role in the public sphere and the fact that they have an important um, role to play in ensuring that free speech values are protected in our society. And that means, as I said earlier, erring on the side of speech unless there's a very clear reason um, to ban certain forms of speech. And I think if our um, business leaders and civil society leader, leaders understand why this is important, um, we'll be in a, in a better situation as a society. And hopefully this incident um, post, you know, uh, October 7th will have demonstrated to people that, you know, these, these things can switch very quickly. You know, yeah. you may have been in favor of or opposed to free speech before, but now you're very much in need of it or, right. or vice versa. Like both sides of the political debate really need these protections some of the time. And so hopefully our, uh, our community leaders begin to understand that. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about, uh, we'll get to, to universities, public institutions in a second, because I think, um, you know, this situation has, has led to some very interesting sort of reversals on the existence of cancel culture and sort of whether it's consequence culture, and whether there should be, uh, you know, punishment or sanction for certain kinds of speech on campuses. But I first want to go back to your point about, um, uh, you know, private business. I mean, uh, I wonder if the challenge is maybe a little tougher for them, given that they're operating in a market context. And in a lot of cases, I mean, if you go, if you go by and close doors up the food chain and a lot of these large businesses, they don't want to have anything to do with the culture wars, but they feel that like, mm -hmm. our, you know, our consumer base is calling upon us to do X, Y, Z. So we need to say something. Um, and so they're, I mean, they might very well say, I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm running a business here. I'm not running a university. My commitment to free speech has to come second to my sort of commercial interest. How do we get around that challenge, uh, given that I, I think it's fair to say a good number of, of businesses would love nothing more than to stay out of the culture wars, but they feel that they're just kind of ships on the ocean here and there's really not much they can do? That's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer to that, except to say that culturally we need to change our thinking. You know, in the last few years, um, it's become the norm to expect that businesses will have things to say about politics. Yeah. Right? I actually think that's a sign of an unhealthy society, right? A healthier yeah. society is one where politics doesn't invade yeah. every corner of your life, right? But regrettably, in the last few years, we've moved in that direction. I think it's time that we begin to move our business leaders back to say, look, you don't need to put out a, a statement about every social ill in the world, even if your, uh, your customers are clamoring for it. And the reason for that is because you're not going to be able to say something every time and yep. you're bound to miss something. And when you do, you know, your, your silence is going to be interpreted as speech as well. Yes. So it's probably better to get out of this game entirely. Yeah. And I mean, we are seeing some signs of that pushback, right? Like you're seeing, I believe there was a bit of a revolt at Netflix, for example, about uh, employees not liking things. And Netflix put out what I thought was a pretty good statement saying, look, you can have your view, but that, that you don't get to decide like what we what 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 we do here, right? Like we can't be driven by 
uh, these kinds of sort of political uh, lenses on things. And, and, and that was with employees. So I think even more so with a consumer base, you can make the argument like there is, that there is actually a, a commercial interest in saying, you know, you could just be known as a business that never talks about politics. And that for people who are sick of politics, that's a welcome breath of fresh air. Because I also agree with you. I, there are some people that think the problem is that, you know, not enough, uh, we don't have enough political education and people are not tuned in. And I'm of the opposite view. I mean, politics should not be something you have to think about in the vast majority of realms of your life. And the problem we have is that it's been uh, seeping into all those things and we should actually try and put it back in the box if we can. Um, But universities, like I said, so this is another interesting case. These are public institutions, right? They don't have to um, they, they get government funding. Now they, I understand, and especially we're seeing this south of the border universities get a lot of private donors. So they don't, you, you say, or do things that, um, uh, upset your donors, you risk losing money. That's not good. So they're going to have the same kind of incentives as a business, but given their special function in society, I mean, universities are supposed to be about the search for truth and, and, and pondering these difficult questions. Um, and the fact that there's still the option to them. I mean, there was a time when universities didn't put out institutional statements on things. You could be uh, an employee or faculty member at university, say whatever you want, but the university as a whole, a department in university would not put out statements. So is, it, is that really what they need to do is just, you know, uh, Harvard University doesn't need to have a position on Israel and, uh, and Hamas, whereas individual academics at Harvard can basically say whatever they like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what I would apply to businesses, I would also apply to universities, recognizing that the university as an institution is supposed to foster speech, supposed to, you know, create knowledge. And that means that the constituent parts of the university, the faculty, the departments, they may have views and they may say all sorts of things, some of them good, some of them bad. That's the function of the university. But this uh, proliferation of statements from university administration, an institutional position, as you called it, about, you know, be it Black Lives Matter, be it defund the police, be it Israel and and Gaza, what what have you. Um, I I think universities are getting themselves and a lot of public institutions are getting themselves into hot water because they're taking positions on some cases. And then people are rightly turning around and saying, well, why are you not taking a position on this other case? And your silence speaks volumes. And I think that's right. So I think the, the fix to all this is for these institutions to kind of get out of this politics game entirely. They are supposed to merely provide the forum for their academics to do their work and, and make their speech. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the silver lining on these sort of the horrific times that we're in is that by providing a counterexample, which will actually alert people who are all in favor of canceling and silencing, recognize that, oh, hold on, right? Like you said, this can change really quickly and we could find ourselves, that is incentive for everybody to step back and say, look, we need, we can, we can argue all we want. We can respond to each other's speech, like, uh, you know, very, very firmly, that's fine. But we can't we can't ban it. We can't prohibit it because it could come back to bite us sometime when we uh, we don't know that. Um, last thing, I, I mean, I and I think you this this was this is part of your your cultural argument. You know, we seem to be living in a time that's like you know less less forgiving as a society. But we, you know, we, we should actually want to live in a society that's more forgiving. Uh, and I think that's I I agree with you. But I think some people would argue that well, no, you know, we want to we want to disincentivize, um, you know dangerous views and harmful views and harmful speech. So when, you know, what's your argument in favor of why we want a society that's more rather than less forgiving? Well, on, on one level, my argument is just a society in which you can be forgiven and you are allowed to change your mind is just a better society to live in, right? It's just mm-hmm. a, it's just a nicer, kinder, gentler place to be. 
but what I would also argue is that oftentimes the positions people take, both in the writing, you know, online, what have you, they're not set in stone, right? I mean, this is, you know, people thinking out loud and sometimes yeah. people have bad days and they say terrible things, right? Um, if you are sort of locked into your very worst statement on your worst day and that has to follow you around for the rest of your life and every Google search brings it up, and every job that you apply to looks at that statement and doesn't give you a job, um, it, it, it's terrible. I wouldn't want to be judged on my worst day. And I think most yeah. people would agree with that. And I think we have to provide the kind of society that allows people to change their minds. Now, now people have to, if, if you've said something truly horrendous, um, you know, you have to show contrition to some extent. You have to show that you've changed your mind. You have to take some steps. But the door to rehabilitation can't be closed off completely because of something terrible that you said. Yeah, it's a bit like, uh, you know, imagine if baseball was this one strike, you're out, right? Yes. How, would that be a better game, right? And and I think you're right. It's uh, So it's really a matter of giving second chances and recognizing that, you know, one tweet or one comment made offhand should not, it, it, the, the penalty should not be disproportionate to the crime, in other words, right? To, to use the crime analogy. So there is still, I mean, if you're a person that's got a long history of saying terrible things and you say them even after reflection and then, yeah, consequences can follow, but... I think you're right. And I think a lot of people, especially people who've been on the receiving end of a cancellation attempt or, or, or you know, uh, something that's gone viral that they rather not have, would certainly agree with you that, uh, you know, cutting people some slack and um, and, and, and really that that's the end um, goal for true free speech, right, is that we have a dialogue and sometimes people adjust their position or change their minds. I mean, that's really uh, the end game here. And if we're not, if it's one strike, you're out. I think uh, we're in a very dangerous place. Um, well, this has been great. Uh, thanks, Kaveh. Uh, again, really appreciate uh, your contribution to this discussion and for joining me on the podcast today. Um, and to those uh, tuning in, uh, we'll see you next time on Insight Policy. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Aaron.